Welcome to Gods and Movie Makers, otherwise known as Podcasters on the Naga Saga, the show about how religion and the Bible shape the stories we tell on screen. I'm Joe Scales. And I'm Katie Turner. On this season, The Chosen One. Why were they chosen? Do they want to be chosen? And why be so attracted to these sorts of stories? We're joined today by Peerwit Mooncam to talk about Raya and the Last Dragon. Peerwit is a PhD candidate, ABD, in Archaeological Anthropology at Washington State University. His research focuses on human use of social space, built environment, and natural landscape through a diachronic investigation of spatial patterns of historical monuments, myths, and local folklores in northern Thailand and mainland Southeast Asia. His article, Ethnohistorical Archaeology and the Mythscape of the Naga in the Chiang San Basin, Thailand, was published last year in Transregional and National Studies of Southeast Asia. Welcome, Peewit. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're going to ask just a question to kick off. If you were going to host a meal to bring people together, what food would you make? I was just recently like talking to my friend because they're going to have like a Thanksgiving dinner soon. And then I'm thinking to cooking curry because everybody want my curries even though sometimes my curry is not that great but i mean i'm <laughs> cooking curry all the time yeah i would say chicken curry with bamboo shoot mm-hmm. yes <laughs> nice is your curry more heat based or more like coconut milk based oh um or is it a really nice blending of the two I, yeah i think it's a nice blending of the two so i tend to use coconut milk and then i tend to use a lot of curry paste and then yeah mm-hmm. then put everything in there and then eat with rice yes so that is my meal <laughs> nice. nice yeah always a winner that's a good choice i like a good curry but uh, they also like have other kind of types of food as well but i've been living in america for a long time so curry is the really easy way to cook because you have like a curry paste it's easy to find from the store and then mm-hmm. And then, you know, when you miss your home and then, or even like miss my mom, I so just, you know, cook curry and then talk to her on the phone, mm. something like that. <laughs> so if you were back in Thailand and you had access to all of the foods that you would want, would you go to the same dish or would you do something different? In Thailand, like the way that we eat every day is quite different because in in America, you need to go to grocery stores and then you keep it, you know, you store it and then you cook it for a meal, something like that. But in Thailand, like they have like a vendors and then food is available 24-7. So it's just, you know, go and buy food. And my mom, sometimes she doesn't want to cook. So she just go and buy some food from like vendors or like the market and then come back and then eat. So maybe like sometimes they have like some other kind of curry without coconut milk or they have some stir fry or even like if we don't want to go anywhere so we cook just easy stir fry with eggs, something like that. We're here to talk about Raya and the Last Dragon. So before we get into our discussion, over mm-hmm. to Katie to give a synopsis of the film. What? Why, why, why are you looking at me like that? Uh, <laughs> nothing. I, I'm just not used to seeing dragons. Impressed, huh? Oh, wait till you see my backstroke. I'm a wicked when I hit that liquid. I got water skills that kill. I slaughter when I hit the water. I'm like, really good at swimming through rhyme. 
Raya and the Last Dragon is a 2021 Disney animated fantasy action adventure film directed by Don Hall and Carlos Lopez Estrada. The film, which is inspired by Southeast Asian cultures, is centered on a warrior princess protagonist named Raya, voiced by Kelly Marie Tran. Raya is on a quest to find a fabled dragon named Sisu in the hopes that Sisu can help banish evil spirits known as the Droon from the land of Kumandra. 500 years previously, the peaceful and prosperous subcontinent of Kumandra had been ravaged by the Droon, mindless spirits that turn every living thing in their path to stone. Sisu, the last surviving dragon, is given her sibling's magic in the form of a gem, which she then uses to banish the Droon before disappearing herself. A power struggle for the gem divides Kumandra's people into five separate kingdoms called Fang, Heart, Spine, Talon, and Tail corresponding to their placement along a gigantic dragon-shaped river. The struggle for the gem eventually leads to breaking the gem and the Droon come back. Many people are turned to stone again, including Raya's father. Raya is helped on her quest to restore Kumandra by representatives from each region. And the story is ultimately one about trust and unity. We kind of want to talk about some more general things before we get into some of the things that come out of the film and talk a little bit about some of your research. But first, I was really interested in the language we use or the terminology we use to talk about beliefs in dragons and particularly for your work in Naga. So I want to really get into this and is belief or religion or folklore or myth, how should we talk about these representations of these figures, creatures in Southeast Asia, more generally, maybe specifically Thailand? Oh, I would start with the ideas of the Naga, at least to my knowledge. So it's kind of drive or like being practiced by the community before the Buddhism was introduced to the regions. So mostly like tied to the belief of like spirituality, you know, like people believe in ghosts and the spirits that, or even like ancestral spirits that been practiced there for a long time before Buddhists even arrived. After Buddhists was introduced to the regions, plus Hinduism as well. So um, they kind of combine or like interact with one another. And then the belief of the Naka itself, it's transformed into or become a part of Buddhist doctrine or even like Buddhist characters. And even like become like a major characters to help the Buddha along the way when he's tried to uh, learn about the Dharma and then also like before he reached enlightenment and then after he reached enlightenment. And so that is the basic that I would say about the Naga or even the dragon. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is there a distinction between Naga and dragons? How are they different? How are they similar? I think it's just terminology because like English, for example, if you talk about Naga, people don't know what that is. So that's why like dragon, because the, I think the ideas come from like the creatures that in a Western perception of the dragon have the wings and fly. And then also like the part of the dragon also drive in East Asia in Chinese cultures, Korean cultures and Japanese culture as well. So that kind of dragon is quite resemble to the Western perception of the dragon. The form of the Naga here is quite different if we're talking about in the Raya. So Raya have like legs and, and can fly. But Naga in South East Asia most of the time doesn't have any legs. So it's just like basically like a serpent. They also can fly and then they can go everywhere, even like in underground or even in the river or even in the ocean. But it's without wings. Like when we think of a flying dragon in Western myth, we think of a 
creature that has wings Mm -hmm. and the naga don't no usually no and sisu and the other dragons in ryan the last dragon they don't have wings either even though they can move through the air yeah but they have feet (laughs) but they have legs yeah yeah they also have a lot of fur and hair. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> they have big manes in the movie. I think, yeah, I think it's kind of like they want at least to make it look like a East Asian dragon a little bit because they have hair on here. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. for the Naga in Southeast Asia, we don't have that because mostly the serpent. The Naga has decorative and everything, or they can have multiple heads mm-hmm. or something like it. it depends on the rank of the Naga. If you read the Tripitaka or the Buddhist doctrine that they're talking about this creature in particular. So it's quite different, but it's still, you know, uh, the ability that can fly or ability can go anywhere or underground, it's similar. And in terms of the Naga, are there multiple ones? Are there specific Naga for particular places? How do they interact with the landscape? So the Naga in Southeast Asian culture is multiple beings. So it's not just one. It's like people. It's like us. They may have parents, they may have grandparents, they may have the leader of the groups or something like that. So it depends on the place and depends on the Mm -hmm. community or cultures that they perceive. This kind of story, learning from the landscape they live in, like for my case in Chingsan, it's they have one prominent naga that came and then helped the king and it's according to like local folklore. So they help the king create or build the city. And then later, if one king is kind of offended the Naga, so they can destroy the city as well. So this one particular Naga, it's mentioned multiple times in local folklore around Chingsan. And then also like everybody has their own version of the Naga, but also like their version or their narrative or their stories still linked to this particular prominent Naga. So in the movie, when we see Sisu actually has siblings Mm -hmm. and she references her siblings a bunch of times and they each have different strengths or different powers. But then at the end of the movie, we see there's so many more dragons than just Sisu and her family. So that seems like that actually maps on quite well to what you're talking about, how the Naga actually function. Yeah, it's it's the whole family. So you've mentioned this specific naga in particular both blesses the city or a king and then mm-hmm. is also responsible for its destruction mm-hmm. so this is another element i find really fascinating about them mm-hmm. is that they both seem to be powerful and they can bring good and bad are there specific things that they can do or they're responsible for or it varies oh it depends i mean mostly like naka has perceived is kind of the wise and then also really righteous creature a mythical creature. So there is a story around Chingsan or northern Thailand, especially in my area of research, that for the children, like, oh, don't do anything bad or don't offend anybody. Or try to be a good person because the Naka will watching you. If you do good, so they will bless you and they protect you and you do something bad, so they will, you know, punish you, something like that. So it's kind of like play a role as, you know, the story like Santa Claus in, in, in the Western culture. But also in in community itself, uh, the ideas of the Nagas play a significant role as well. Like uh, when when people do something with the farmland or the landscape itself, like physical landscape, like to build a house, to build a temple, they need to ask the permission from the Naga first before they build it. Mm-hmm. Or even like, going to plant the rice, the pedifuel or 
to harvest something or you need to ask a permission or something like that. How do they go about that? So is there a specific way? Do you have to go somewhere or do something to ask the Naga permission to build or construct? In my area of research, so they have a manuscript for the people, we call like the religious leader or technician in Thai. So they have like a kind of whole handbook for people who specialize on this ritual. For example, they need to consult the handbook before putting the first post to build a house. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exact details. So it's like, for example, if the Naga like lying on their back or lying on their side and their head like toward the west, the certain posts need to put in a certain location, like maybe on the northeast or something like that to kind of like nurture or blessing of the new house that's about to be constructed for that people. So there's a scene early on in the movie where Raya has been trying to find Sisu mm -hmm. because there's this idea that Sisu is the last remaining dragon and she's just hidden somewhere. And so she's going to different places all along the map and she's at the last place that it could possibly be. And when she gets there, she gets down on her knees and she engages in what I guess the right words would be some sort of prayer with ritual behavior. And I was wondering if that was similar to what you're talking about yep. here with the way that people actually engage with the Naga. Yep. Like um, for the house construction, people will gather and then spiritual leader or religious leader will put some kind of temporary altar and then they put some food and then and then they do prayer a little bit and chanting in either Pali or Sanskrit or even like in, in Northern Thai. And then after that, they can start to construct the house. And at the same time, also like they have other rituals. For example, they have some certain rituals that they do at the river and then, you know, ask or play something to help them or ask them for blessing. Similar to like in Raya. Recently, they have Anaga ritual, like worshipping. So it's become popular in, in, in Southeast Asia too because they have so many local stories. So people tend to like talk about it more. You talked a little bit about domestic rituals, but I was also wondering if those same things bear out to build temples or any other kind of architecture or are they slightly different? Is it the same thing with consulting or asking the permission of the Naga? For the construction, one temple, I was talking with the abbot. The new hall were just built at that time. And then they have two Naga over here. And I asked him, why you built the hall? Like the, the hall is like mm -hmm. when the people do their worshipping or like offer food for the monk or something like that. So why that particular building was there? And then he told me that the head of villages had a dream about two Nagas that live under the hall right now. So that's why like they want him to build the hall over there. A sign even through their dreams or even like a sign that they found throughout the landscape, they will perceive as a Naga blessing and they will follow that advice and then construct the building. I think that's really helpful. It, it's like this wider picture of the significance for constructing the built environment. In this article, Ethno-Historical Archaeology, you've identified these four types of connections between the Naga myth and landscape. And I think a lot of these really seem to bear out very similar processes to how the dragons interact with the landscape in or are represented in the landscape in Raya and the Last Dragon. Mm -hmm. But the four activities you've identified are disasters and flood, rivers and waterways, weather and rain, and then this landscape and building patterns. 
I, I was interested in there's this element of disaster, but then there's also mm. the importance of rain as well as a good yes. force. And this is something which the film also bears out. So the river, when the last dragon dies, yeah. the river dries up. Mostly, like, for example, if the Naga that linked to the rain and the weather, if the rain is too much or like some year have so much rain and then sometimes it got flood, people always perceive that it's the Naga doing. Even like the calendar that produce every year and then they will kind of quantify how much rain they will get for that year from the number of the Naga figures on the calendars. And then also they have certain terms that are certain description that talking about how the rain will come in first quarter or second quarter or something like that. And there's a connection made between the dragons and perhaps their magic. I don't know if magic is the right term for that. I would call ability. I mean, that's the term they use in the movie is that it's magic. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's magic. Yeah. I think magic, it just communicates to kids, right? Yes. In terms of Buddhism itself, or even like, you know, in local folklore, they're always full of this miraculous story. For my Soviet Asian perspective, the miraculous story can be something simple, like do kindness to people. For example, Naga helped the prince at that time, you know, build the city. The local folklore said he just built in one day. That is miraculous, right? So something like that. Right. So that's the miraculous aspect is, is how quickly it happened. Yeah. So to your point about how like the miraculous can even just be something as being kind mm. in the film, Raya finds Sisu and then Sisu can take human form. And I thought that was really interesting because in the myth that you write about in your article, that Naga also takes human form. Yeah. And Sisu is constantly telling Raya to treat people with kindness yeah. and to be open. Yeah. What they're trying to do is they're trying to find the broken bits of the gem so that they can put the gem back together. And to find the broken bits of the gem, they need to go to the leaders of each of these regions. And Sisu is constantly telling Raya, bring a gift, mm -hmm. come with kindness and openness and just ask. And Raya's like, no, you can't just ask. We have to have a plan where we break into the place and we find the gem and we take it. Yeah. And Sisu's always trying to reinforce a sort of social behavior mm -hmm. or a cultural norm, trying to remind Raya of how to behave properly in society. Yeah. I'm assuming that there is that link to what you're, the idea of even kindness being the miraculous. Yes. You can see it when we're talking about the permission, right? So when people build something or when they do something with the landscape, they need to offer. That is kind of like a gesture you need to have. You need to have something in order to get something back. Right. It's kind of like become our daily life. You know, um, I interview the abbot and sometimes like the lay people came and then asked about something, but they always bring gift or either like some food or something like that to the mounts or to the abbots in order to get something. So yeah. And then also in the part of like transfiguration. So in Raya, it's quite interesting that they show like Sisu can show themselves as a dragon at some time to people. But in Southeast Asia, they don't do that. Mostly Naga will be really private and reserved. Mm -hmm. So they will just transfigure as a human if they want to talk to human. And then maybe later, the human will know that it's the Naga. They will tell or something like that. Mm. But maybe like it's also like play in the Raya kids because it's just Raya, right? But now it's later, like I think they show, you know, to everybody in the world, right? Because of all of the Naga. They do. Like at the end, <laughs> all the dragons reemerge yeah. and they all fly across the sky. All yeah. the people see the dragons. 
Yeah, but the way that you're explaining it sounds similar to me to the way that God interacts with people in the Bible, because, you know, you don't see God. Moses sees a burning bush the first time he sees God, or when God wants to interact with people, he sends representatives. Mm. So is is there a reason why the Naga hide themselves from people and disguise themselves in human form? Yeah. I think because they try to protect themselves as well. Mm -hmm. If people believe they exist, right? Naga is not a creature that live in their own world. People believe that their world is underground or somewhere far away or even within the city itself. If you caught that in my article in Changshan, they have one effort talking about the place that you can go or the place that Naga came up from their world and then they can go down the way out and in. So I think for me, they don't want to like expose to humans so much to protect themselves. So is there this concept of the Naga being hidden, but at one point they maybe weren't? So from the sound of it, it's that they're keeping themselves hidden because people might hurt them or that there's something that could go wrong. But in Raya with the dragons, it's mostly part of the film narrative that the dragons were also turned to stone 500 years ago. And there's a belief in dragons, but there's also kind of a concept of, oh, maybe they're not really real. Mm. And I was wondering whether this perhaps mapped onto a sense of the world back before was filled with creatures and entities and in the language of riot and magic and all these other kind of things. And then now those things are slightly hidden Is that the same with the Naga? Were they ever not hidden? Or have they always been perhaps underground and keeping themselves hidden from humans? Like, does myth and folklore see a before time? Mm. Yeah, I think it's similar. Like, for example, in a folklore about the Naga help the prince, I think before, from my understanding, they might be easily show themselves to the good people. And then, you know, that time doesn't have many people like now. Right. So mostly before Hinduism and Buddhism came to the world region, they roamed the areas and, and then interact with people. Hmm. But also, like, it's interesting point that you mentioned people, even even in, in today, like in Southeast Asian society, some people believe that Naka still exists, mm-hmm. Naka is real. So sometimes they try to find them. There's so many festivals, so many ritual ceremonies for, you know, worshipping the Naka along the river, especially Mekong River that links so many countries. So mm-hmm. in Chengsan itself, located on the bank of that river as well. So this river is very important because so many version and so many stories about the Naka along the river mm. from Myanmar down to Cambodia. So this was something that was perhaps in Raya, and I don't know if this is the case in Naga belief. But are the Naga embodied by the river? Or is this where they just might be sometimes? Because the whole of the land of Commander and Raya is the river is the shape of the dragon. And it's like there is an embodiment of the dragon in the landscape and in the people themselves. They, they're all kind of part of this unified concept. I actually thought that your term, Piawit, that you employ in your article, Mythscape, works really well for describing the landscape picture of Kumandra in the movie because mm. it is almost like a literal mythscape the fact that the river is the shape of a dragon and then they're all living along that yeah people believe that that the waterways and the river is representing the Naka activity through the landscape so when they move past the landscape they will create the river and the stream mm. that's why I think about using the term mythscape because people see the landscape to myth mm-hmm. to the folklore to the story right Should we talk a little bit about Chosen One and perhaps what Raya is doing in this? So 
Katie and I have kind of settled on a number of ideas about how the chosen one as an idea is conveyed in a lot of Western films. And Raya does something quite interesting with it because I think between us we've identified perhaps three chosen ones in Raya Mm. and it progresses as you go throughout the film and initially Raya seems to be a chosen one like she's the protagonist she's very centered in the narrative it's about her mission to get her father back but then also there's this restoring the world back to this harmony and all these other ideas that are played around and then Sisu the dragon also is a chosen one she's the last one she's kind of essentially worshipped because she has saved humanity from the Drew. And then... But she's also been chosen by her siblings who give her the responsibility of being the last dragon to banish the Drune. Mm. So there's that aspect. And she talks about how having that moment where she is chosen by her siblings gave her the strength to be able to complete that task. Which then comes on to Namari, who ultimately seems to be the third of these chosen one figures. And it is the group, the representatives of all these other kingdoms, placing their trust in her that allows her to be the chosen one. Namari is our antagonist. She is like the main foil for Raya. But at the end, in the way that Sisu had all of her siblings put faith in her and she's able to banish the Drune, the team that Raya has sort of assembled from the regions, they put their faith in Namari and she banishes the Drune. So is this compelling? That I guess, is this a compelling choice for Chosen One from your perspective? I think like the pattern of Chosen One has become like a Western perspective. So for us, it's just basically responsibilities that pass down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. The chosen one, it might be in the context and the circumstances that they might find along the way of, of life. For me, like in Southeast Asian cultures, the, the chosen one is always like tied to elite group. If you learn about history, many manuscripts have this person have a lot of the terms like destiny or something like that coming from your past life because you know buddhism mm. play an important role as well so like the past life you did a lot of good deeds and then this life kind of like have this ability or let's call it magic something like that when you talk to people people believe you something like that so mm-hmm. That is also like one of the characters of the chosen one that if you want to say in, in Southeast Asian culture. And it's also something that you've come to. So from a past life that living a very good past life has put you into that position then to carry out some kind of really important task. Yeah. Sorry, I need to mention this book. It's Joseph Campbell. You know. Oh, yes. Know. <laughs> yeah. Hero of a Thousand Faces. Because of the ideal that, you know, many myths and many folklots and many um, kind of cultures in the Western culture, like we need to get through this kind of audios and chosen one or something like that. But in Southeast Asia, it's quite different because we have a lot of multicultural settings. So the pattern of family, it's kind of, um, it depends on the cultures. And then also like mostly because of that, one thing that I need to mention is we learn history through the mainstream history we've been teach the same thing maybe in the western you know maybe in england you know through like this king does this that queen does that mm-hmm. and then we don't talk about the normal people life so much and one thing that raya that did a good job or and also at the same time mm-hmm. did a bad job that like, they try to represent people but people still 
tied to this kind of entity or like titles or like you no know, elite groups or something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's because they're sticking to the standard Disney format of having a Disney princess, and so we have yeah. Raya and then Namari, who are both very much positioned as princesses. Yeah, and so yeah, so it is elite, and then. The person who joins from Spine, he's also an elite figure, and it's only the two other, the children, the one from Tail and the one from Talon, who are not elite. And it's kind of like when it's introduced that two characters, they represent quite well about the region as well, you know, like the boat trip. But also, like, I wouldn't say, like, we don't have a chosen one we may have, but it might not be like really kind of need to be like really big to need to save like the whole world or something like maybe like just basically you need to save your family mm. or something like that or mm-hmm. or some certain religious need and then you need to go and get it and something like that. Not like the whole thing that you need to like go fight the dragon, rescue the princess, right. like you know uh, the Western folklore. <laughs> so the stories focus on things that are a bit smaller, yeah, but not necessarily less important, just smaller. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. what I was going to come to, which I I think is really helpful for this. So understanding this as a Disney product essentially, but it's mediating mm. lots of elements of. Southeast Asian culture. I was excited though. Yeah, I was excited, but when I watch it, I kind of feel like not so much that <laughs> maybe I ex- I, I expect too mm-hmm. much or expect more something like that. So I was excited when when Raya came, and then when I watch it, I feel like okay, yeah, it's good to see something, but it's not like ooh, like, <laughs> you know, like kind of yeah. um happy. <laughs> mm. I think that that is the feeling expressed in so many articles that I read about this written by people coming from Southeast Asian backgrounds or from Southeast Asia themselves. There was one particularly really good article, and we will link to that as well as a few others on our website that was in Cinema, which is Singapore and Asian film news. And that expressed very much the same thing, like really excited to see this movie, how exciting to get Southeast Asian representation in the West, but Ultimately, what it boiled down to was a collection of Easter eggs. Mm. So there were lots of fun things that you could look to, but culture and identity isn't formed by a collection of Easter eggs. Mm. But I thought maybe we could actually talk a little bit about some of the fun bits of representation. Mm -hmm. They talked about different fighting styles being represented. Raya carries Arnis sticks, which are a Filipino martial art item. The Chris, mm. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, which is a curved Indonesian blade. And so we see that represented as well. Muay Thai fighting style, which is used in Fang. Fang itself is inspired by Angkor Wat from Cambodia. And also the white and gold they're pulling from Thai temples. The floating marketplace that we see in Talon is really common both to Vietnam and Thailand. And one thing that I noticed, and I was really excited to notice this being a textile and material culture nerd, was there was a really quick moment in the beginning of the movie when they're in Heart, which is where Raya and her father are from. And there's a woman in a room and she's doing batik dyeing on a textile. And she actually has the tool that you use to you basically drop hot wax onto a textile to create designs. And then you dye the textile and the wax comes off. And then that leaves the space where the design has been created. And I've tried doing it myself in a textile course, and it's so difficult. But that was a fun little thing to see. And 
Raya's animal friend, who I can only imagine is like a woodlouse. Yeah. Um, but really big, uh, <laughs> is named Tuk Tuk, and then she actually rides Tuk Tuk around later. Yeah. The things like this, and there's a lot of food, jackfruit and durian. I think a lot of people found a lot of joy in a lot of the food references. Yeah. There is that dish that is meant to represent the coming together of all the five kingdoms. Has that a real world counterpart? Yeah, Tom Yum in Thai, Tom Yum soup or something like that because they put lemon glass and chili peppers in there. Mm. But the meats, like, we eat a lot of rice, so they don't see rice so much in, in Raya. Other than kanji. Mm, yeah. Because the little boy whose name I, I forget, he has a boat, which is a restaurant, and he serves shrimp kanji. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then also, like, you see a lot of scene in, in the landscape, but I haven't seen the rice paddy field. I... I'm thinking a little bit that they don't show people working on rice paddy field because mm. Southeast Asia is a huge area that, you know, people growing rice and it's become kind of prominent scene like in Bali, in Thailand, in Vietnam, and in Cambodia as well. I don't know that, that Raya did show that. I don't think that they did, no. I don't think that featured much at all. I mean, yeah, and now that I'm thinking about it actually because the dragons are tied to the presence of water and there's the absence of the dragons and when she finally locates Sisu, which is at the very end of Tail and it's all dry, arid landscape and we see her going along the river and the river is like a really dry riverbed with a teeny bit of river of like little stream left in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering maybe in the imaginary land of the creators of the movie, at one point that was a river that was full and a lush landscape and this is supposed to be dry because of the absence of all the dragons. Well, we have a drought too mm. in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So I think it can reflect a little bit when the dry season came. And it's happening from time to time in, in many rivers in, in Southeast Asia. So I think mm-hmm. I like the ideas that they said, like, when the Naga's gone, it's no water. Right. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that. <laughs> because, you know, like, representing a little bit, like, the relationship between humidity and the Naga or the mythical serpent that is really important to them. Mm. Other than having these check boxes that I sort of ran through all these different things that were nice little visual representations, nice little Easter eggs of Southeast Asian culture to get that depth of representation. What would you have liked to see Mm -mm. so that, that you actually came out of the movie feeling satisfied? And maybe for food to think about, would this be a change to the plot? Would this be a change to maybe the specificity of some of the characters and kingdoms? I think like the the one that I said like I want to see more community. Mm-hmm. I want to see more community, local people, and then also we mentioned a little bit about rice paddy field. So I want to see the scene that maybe like Raya and her father walking around the paddy fields and her father talking about like how this is important to community, and then this is life sources, and also like you know how the dragon help and the water came. They they have rain, but they don't mention like how important that the dragon is. Right. Mm-hmm. Not just showing like it's a lot of water, but in terms of like cosmological concepts. Mm. I'm also like working on my postdoc project if I finish my PhD. Yes. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Good luck. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> uh, on like aquatic cosmology, because people tend to ditch out the waterscape 
mostly like you know when you're talking about cosmologies it's going to be the mountains mm-hmm. because according to hindus and buddhism also i don't know about christianity people pay attention to the large monuments in the land mm. but they don't talk about like how water is important body of water is important to like people's life especially in southeast asia yeah I think this is a really key thing because particularly in Western anthropology of religion, I think Rudolf Otto, Mercy Eliad, mm. both of their books really talk about the mountains as really, really significant things. Yep. But then it's often so much water rituals or associations with bodies of water become really, really significant in lots and lots of religions around the world. You can see like a little bit of uh, similar to... Um... The ideas of the Naka. Naka is representing water, the whole body of water and the rains and everything, right? So I see like from the Western perspective, the changing since Christianity, because before like in Greek, we have Poseidon, right? Mm. So like other polytheistic religions, they also have representation of the water god. That's why, like, you know, my, my first thought, I want to just bring waterscape back to Southeast Asia, mm. not just Mount Meru or not just the large structure of, like, really beautiful monument or temple, but the water. In my, my article talking about why the Naga is really important, because they build the temple really close to the water mm. or the place that the Naga reside, something like that. So I'm thinking because you, you referenced Tim Ingold's work and he talks a lot about environment, but particularly landscape and what that means in human social perception. I'm thinking waterscape is a way to think mm-hmm. about that for your future project. And it's actually it's doing something quite different and reframing in terms of a Southeast Asian culture and the significance of water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I forgot to mention, they create body of water as well. Like in Cambodia, the whole city of Angkor Thom, like the whole Angkor area, even in the last structure, like Angkor, Angkor Wat. Wat. So they build mm-hmm. like the huge Barai in the east and the west. So they create like the man-made water because body of water is important to the cosmology as well. They mention that in Raya as well, actually, when they talk mm. about Fang, which is very obviously inspired by Angkor Wat. They actually say that it's a constructed body of water created through a dam. It's mm. one of the lines in the and movie. And it keeps them safe as well. Yeah, it's about safety. Yeah, because yeah. at the beginning where Hart is keeping the gem, that is around pools of water as well. And there's something about how they're touching the water. I think when they come in to actually steal the gem at the very beginning, yeah. there's something about them touching the water and everything yeah. goes wrong. Yeah. So, yeah, there's so much going on. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like, don't forget that um, Angkor is based on Hinduism cosmology. So, mm-hmm. also, like, in, in Ching San, elder people that I interviewed, they don't like the way that people build the road over the waterways or build the dam because they want the water to let the water, you know, flow naturally by themselves, and then they will benefit more right. than just building the dam. They're correct. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to know what both of your thoughts were on the Droon, because I kind of struggle with their meaning. They talk a little bit about them being the dragons are water and the Droon are kind of fire and that's where they turn everything to stone. But I, I struggle to understand them, let's say. And I don't know if you two had any thoughts about what their meaning is or perhaps if they represent anything. In Soviet-Asian context, maybe compared to like a bad spirit or a bad luck or bad circumstances that happen to people. 
I think reading your article helped me think about it a little bit more because of this idea that the Naga are responsible both for what is good, but also what is bad. And that's ultimately dependent on the behavior of people. Mm -hmm. So people behave in a positive way, they get something positive out of it, Mm -hmm. they behave in a negative way, and there is a punishment associated. Mm -hmm. And there's this line in the movie where Sisu explains that the Droon are effectively people, people make the Droon. And so even though in Ryan the Last Dragon, it's not the dragons themselves that are responding to the bad behavior of people with punishment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is still this vocalized connection between, well, it's your behavior that's causing the druid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it made me think about when Raya found Sisu and how you know landscape reflect the people who live within the landscape as well. So in Southeast Asian contexts, some places just drought, but other places might be foliage. Hmm. So the Naga might move somewhere, or if something happened because of you know people did something to offend them, or like if you don't taking care of your landscape. The Naka will leave and then everything will look like, you know, dead and dried and less water, you know. But if you did go everything around like foliage and something will green or something like that. So when the Naka came back, they might help bring life back, something like that. That that what I see from Salisation perspective. I was thinking about how Kumandra ultimately in the movie is an expression of a utopian ideal. They talk about Kumandra as being the opposite of a place where there are borders and division and different kingdoms. Mm -hmm. So Kumandra would be the absence of borders, everybody coming together, the world reuniting in a sense of harmony. So it feels like a utopian ideal. And I'm wondering if there is some sort of utopian ideal in that way in Southeast Asian thought. Yeah, I believe Kumandra might for me, like it's representing, it's not a modern world in Southeast Asia, mostly in um, maybe 14th, 15th century during that time. It's represented a little bit because we don't have border, so we have kingdoms, we have states, but also like mostly people pay attention to the center, not periphery. So periphery is more like community and then people between these two kingdoms, they communicate, but most of the time they share resources and sometimes they help each other if like the bigger threat outside like for example mongol or something like that came so they come together and then help protecting the region in southeast asian cultures border it's not really like permanent line so it can move around this kind of center depends on like you know how powerful each kingdom are so i can see a little bit the idea of utopia represented okay well like that they came together as just a neighbor like, you know, like Thailand, Laos, even though, like, we have a lot of problems in, in, right. in the real history. <laughs> but people look back on that time period with a sort of utopian nostalgia. Yeah. Right. Something like that. So kind of like maybe fantasize a little bit, mm. but try to create like a really harmonious, beautiful Southeast Asian community that they have a lot of kingdom, but also like in the real life and like every other places, it's not like that, right? They come together sometimes. So people tend to think about like, we have to have a leader. We have to have one leader. That's why I try to argue in my dissertation. Like, hierarchy is everywhere. They have hierarchical system, of course, but it's not always you no know, hierarchy. That's why I use the other term in terms of archaeologists called heterarchy. Other people have more power. Other people have this resources. Particular, other people have these types of resources shared between these group of people. So 
one leader can stay long or something like that, or one kingdom is up and down, it's, it's natural. But would the Naga then fit into that heterarchy sense of to build something like a temple or something like that you ask for their permission and then there is another figure who mediates that in some way by being a specialist so that the interacting with the landscape and beliefs about it also function in this kind of layered system good question i see the naka is not part of hierarchy mm-hmm but when Buddhist was introduced or Hinduism was introduced, this Naga put in a kind of classifying relationship with other elements or other entities. So I think for me, I try to argue in that the Naga give people space in terms of like when Buddhism can't explain the thing to them, but the Naga can. Mm-hmm. Naga will help to understand and keep the social space that Buddhism or even like the mainstream Buddhism can't explain to the local community. So I see the Naka as heterarchy, <laughs> you know, mm. in terms of like mainstream Buddhism is maybe in, in the regions, maybe hierarchy, you know, because, um, you know, the king has to be the top and then, the, you know, come down and then normal people, right? But Naka is everywhere, you know, they have so many versions, they have so many narratives, they have stories, it depends on the region. So I think it's kind of give people get space when people couldn't even go to the temple and talking about their own personal problem because maybe like the normal mainstream Buddhism or doctrine can't explain. So like the belief of the Naka or spirits might give them more space to like understand and something like that. Pierre, it's been so great having you with us today. But before we let you go, we'd love for you to pitch us a pairing. This can be anything, anything at all that you would pair with Raya and the Last Dragon. Maybe a drink, a food, another movie, a book, an article, a piece of music. The sky's the limit. So I think for Raya, I imagine like any boat trip in Southeast Asian River, so any country. So you can go like take a long boat trip in Mekong River. You can see the exactly the same, you know, kind of scene that you see from the movie uh, and the floating market or something like that. And then you can see like how culture like sprung out along the river and you can see like how lively people can be along the river as well. Also like think about either Mai Tai or Singapore string. <laughs> like the cocktail. Singapore Sling, I haven't heard anyone recommend that in so long, but that is a good drink. That's a really, really good drink. Perfect. Yeah. That's not for kids yeah. though. That's not well, a kid's pairing. Yes, <laughs> no, no. I think the the boat trip it's it's really nice and a mai tai. Yeah, a, a boat trip and a mai tai or a Singapore sling. Yeah, sounds brilliant. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. This is great, Piawit. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Hopefully, I give you some version of my knowledge so don't take my word for it for all of them. So please <laughs> consult. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing your research with us. You're welcome. We really appreciated it. That's our show today. Gods and Movie Makers is researched and produced by us, Joe Scales and Katie Turner, and supported by listeners like you. Our music is by Style to Kid. As always, you can follow us at GodMovPod on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, head on over to our website, GodsAndMovieMakers.com, where you can donate to us or subscribe for additional content. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.